Hey, welcome to More Than Bread, episode number 102. More Than Bread is a podcast that unabashedly, without embarrassment, says that Scripture is even better than sliced bread. The, the title of the podcast comes from something once said in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy and, and was then quoted by Jesus in the Gospels. The statement was, people shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, the word of God is necessary for life. We, we cannot thrive without the word of God. The word of God brings life. It brings joy. It makes us pause and go, huh, I never thought of it like that. It, it helps us to gain God's perspective on life. It deepens our hope, and, and it points out with gentle and sometimes not so gentle conviction when we're headed the wrong way. It's our GPS for life. And and even more importantly, through it, the voice of God, we hear the voice of God. I, I believe that the Spirit of God makes the Word of God come alive so that we hear the voice of God, which is so amazing. So in this episode, we're reading Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 39, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Here's what it says. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Now, Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, let me just pause for a moment. Say, so I, I, I really believe that this, this added narrative from Mark, Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, that, that means that, si, that, that Mark... And Peter, they knew Alexander and Rufus. I believe with all my heart that Simon became a follower of Jesus. As he saw Jesus, as he saw what happened, he became a follower of Jesus. And and Alexander and Rufus were known to Peter and Mark and, and the whole rest of the crew. And so they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine, drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each. In other words, my words, Jesus has no clothes. Verse 25, it was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the, the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, before I continue reading on it, just, I don't know, it's kind of amazing to me, and yet... We've seen this before. It's kind of the psychology of the crowd. Once the crowd is a part of seeing Jesus crucified, they they turn. They, they turn the, the crowd that welcomed him in on, on Palm Sunday, the, the crowd that saw him do miracles, they they turn. They become mocking. Verse 31, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He he saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. Now we know, my words, we know from another gospel text that one of those crucified with him, stuck up for him, and, and ends up, Jesus said, being with him in paradise. Verse 33, at noon darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet of Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so that he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether 
Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the Son of God. Let me ask you a question this weekend. What would happen if Jesus moved into your neighborhood, your apartment building, your dorm? What would change? What would he do? Who would he hang out with? Would there be a buzz about the new guy? And what would be behind the buzz? Let me bring it home a bit. What would happen if Jesus moved into your house, your apartment, your dorm room? What, what would change? What would he do? Would people living close by view your home differently than they do now? And can I make it personal now? What would happen if Jesus took over your life? I mean, ask yourself, what if my life looked like his life? As I've been pondering the cross of Jesus lately, I keep going back to those words that Paul wrote to his friends in the church at Galatia. He wrote in Galatians 2, 20 and 21, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. Crucified with Christ and Christ now lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. There is a way of so identifying with Christ that we are crucified with Christ. We die with Christ. And when we die with Christ, what does Paul say? I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So what would or what should that look like? I mean, let's narrow it down to a day. What if for one day, Jesus were to become you? <laughs> Well, what if for 24 hours, Jesus wakes up in your bed, walks in your shoes, answers your email, lives by your schedule, your family becomes his family, your pains become his pains, nothing about your life changes, not your friends, not your job, not your health, every circumstance remains the same, but for 24 hours, Jesus lives your life. Would people notice a difference? Would a Jesus heart soften your temper, give you more patience? Would you see sunsets differently? How would you react to credit card phone salesmen? Would you drive differently? <laughs> Would there be less idiots on the road? <laughs> Would your schedule change tomorrow? Would, would would your time on Netflix or social media change? Would Jesus change your career? Maybe maybe just change your attitude towards your job? Would you know more of your neighbors? Would more of your neighbors be glad they know you? What would your worship be like? Your prayer life? Would your time reading the Bible increase? You're thinking, enough already. I, I get the point. but But do we? And if we do, can we say like Paul with any degree of confidence, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So let me ask you, if the goal is Christ living in me, Jesus living through me, letting my life look like his life in me, if there was a Jesus scale on a scale of 1 to 100, where are you right now? I mean, just what number comes to mind? See, the more God shapes our hearts to be like Jesus, the more we realize that being like Jesus is not a religious thing. It's not a Sunday event. It's not about where do I go to church. It's, it's how am I the church. It's a Monday through Saturday, Monday through Sunday lifestyle. It's hearing Jesus and putting into practice what we hear. It's the building of life piece by piece, day by day. It's the daily drawing of Jesus into you. And it's being crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's being marked by the cross so that we can be marked by his life. So, so again, to Mark 15, we, let, let's just look at some of the marks of the cross on our lives. It, it says it was the third hour when they crucified him. 
There, there was a written charge, king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers, revolutionaries with him, one on either side. And and, and those who walked by hurled insults. And and, and one of the things that, that is, is remembered by Peter as he communicates it to Mark, he says, he says that, that, that people walking by, even religious leaders walking by, kept saying, um, save yourself. Come down from the cross, save yourself. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Hear those words again. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. (laughs) Imagine for a moment what might have happened if Jesus came down from the cross. He could have. You know that, right? And in the garden, when Judas came to betray him and Peter started fighting for him, what did Jesus say? He says, stop. Don't don't you know that if I asked for it, my father would send 12 legions of angels to set me free? Imagine what would have happened if Jesus came down off the cross. Certainly would have been more comfortable for him. Would they have believed in him? I don't know. They already knew his miracles, and they still rejected him. And those mocking words are so ironic. He saved others, but he can't save himself. They said when in reality, he saved others because he wouldn't save himself. See, this is the first mark of the cross. It's self-denial. He denied himself. If if we want to look like Jesus, we need to follow the path of self-denial. In fact, do you remember those words from Mark chapter 8 where Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You know, you know what, in Jesus' day, <laughs> I don't think people joked about the cross. They, they had seen too many. I, almost everybody knew somebody who had been crucified. Crucifixions were as common as a cloudy day in State College. I don't think they joked about the cross. Can you imagine what Jesus' followers thought when they heard Jesus say, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me? I mean, it isn't easy, is it? Years ago, we were doing a teaching series at Calvary on servanthood. And really, servanthood is another name for self-denial, right? That's that's what it looks like. That's what we call people who practice self-denial. We call them servants. And over the course of the years, you know what? I've had a lot of good, sometimes hard conversations about what it means to be a servant. I love the topic. I love the challenge. Jesus once said, if you want to become great, be the servant of all. So, I was working on my servanthood sermon during this series. It it was Thursday evening, big sermon prep time for me at the time, working on my sermon notes. And I I went into the bathroom and someone in our family had used too much toilet paper. (laughs) The the toilet was plugged. Now, I didn't know this till after it came time for me to flush. But when I flushed the water and it almost came up to the top, but not over, I I thought, well, that's good. (laughs) I'll leave it alone. Maybe it will take care of itself. So I went back to my laptop. I'm working on my message on servanthood. Did I did I mention I'm, I'm working on servanthood? I, I've got my headphones on and I'm pondering servanthood and self-denial, this message on servanthood. And about 15 minutes later, I hear gagging. Lynn, my wife, is gagging. And she's gagging pretty loud because I can hear her through the headphones. She's gagging in the bathroom trying to unplug the toilet. I, I pulled my headphones down. She's and there's just no nice way to describe it. She's gagging. I, I keep thinking it might stop, but it doesn't. So, of course, I pulled my headphones back up and turned the music louder so that I, I couldn't hear because I hate toilets. And I'm thinking if Lynn needs me, she'll come and get me. I'm doing something important. I'm figuring out what to say about servanthood. 
About 90 seconds later, my eldest daughter, Sarah, was standing there yelling at me, Mom's gagging. Can you go help her unplug the toilet? I said to her, no lie. Of course I'll go help. I'm a servant. (laughs) So how are you doing in the area of self-denial? Are you willing to elevate someone else's ideas over your own? Are you willing to sacrifice for someone else's gain? Are you willing to suffer for someone else's good? See, I think... I would have come down from the cross if I could have come down from the cross. But Jesus refused to save himself so that he could save others. He denied himself. He emptied himself, Paul said in Philippians 2. He emptied himself of all the privileges and wonder of God. He became a servant and he went to the cross. And while the people around him viewed that moment as powerlessness leading to death, Jesus knew that it was death, surrendered death leading to life. There's another mark of the cross. In verses 38 through 39, when it says, With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Now, this curtain in the temple, it, this is this is a feet-thick curtain. This is not like a curtain on your windows. It's not a sheer. It, this is a thick curtain because it it's separating the holy place from the holy of holies. Like only, only the high priest could go back behind this curtain And it says, when when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. This curtain torn from two top to bottom. The Holy of Holies was was where the presence of God resided for the people of Israel. The curtain was meant to keep people out. But sometimes, honestly, I wonder if the people didn't start to think the curtain was there to keep God in. And on that day when the curtain was torn from top to bottom, it was like God reaching down to say, you cannot keep me or my love in a box. And now I'm opening the way for you to come into my presence. See, the cross is the mark of love unleashed. There's so many images. A lot of metaphors are used in the Bible to describe the love of God. For example, Psalm 103 verse 11 has an astronomy metaphor. It says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Some of you stargazing, astronomy-loving, physics-type people just kind of perked up. You're you're mentally getting out your telescope and calculations, 186 miles a second for a year to get a light year multiplied by 63,000 to get to the closest star, and you're thinking, wow, that's some love as high as the heavens are above the earth. Then there's the nursing mother metaphor that comes from the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's just something in the eyes of a nursing mother that expresses an almost incomprehensible depth of love. Then then there's the father image in Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. You know what? There are few things that thrill me more than those moments when I encounter head-on that stirring of father love in my heart, when I get a, I'm not looking for anything from you, no holds barred hug from one of my girls or, or to see the tears in my boy's eyes when I'm leaving for a trip. Okay, the boys were a lot younger when that happened. And then there's a sacrificial friend metaphor in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down their life for his friends. In in the permanent record of his word, God has told us time and time and time again that he loves us. And he's, he's used a variety of illustrations in the hopes that one of those stories would resonate with the deepest chords of your heart. But every story, every illustration, every metaphor was simply a preview of the real deal, the cross. Love unleashed is the mark of the cross on us. 
You know, in the last episode, we took a brief look at at the cross passage in the book of Isaiah, years before it even happened. Isaiah was given a, a glimpse of the love of God unleashed in Jesus. Remember Isaiah 53, nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him, wounded and crushed for our sins. The Lord laid on him the guilt and sins of us all. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He was marked, Jesus was marked. He was marked with the extreme love of God's heart. And then Isaiah continues in verses 11 and 12 with the words, after the labor and travail of his soul, after the labor and travail of the soul of Jesus, God was satisfied because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered for the sinners. He bore the sin of many. The, the depth of his love caused him to labor and travail for us. Now, Lynn, my wife, delivered our first three children naturally <laughs> as as though there's anything natural about that. But with Josh, she had drugs. And after Josh, she said, I could have 10 more like that. An epidural deadens the nerves in the abdominal area. I remember sitting there watching these big spikes on the monitor, and she's just smiling. I started cheering on the intensity of the spikes, 20, 30, come on, 50, 50, 50. And she just laughed. If I'd done that with the first three, she would have gotten up out of bed and done unspeakable things to me but now she's feeling no pain. Listen, somehow somebody slipped in and gave the church an epidural. We're feeling no pain, so we don't know when to push. We don't know how to travail. We, we look at our world and we see the spikes on the monitor and all we, got, all we can say is somebody's got to take care of this stuff. But we don't travail. We don't push in prayer. I just wonder, what if we were marked with the intensity of love for the people around us that causes us to travail for those around us? I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me read again the last part of the crucifixion of Christ from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message. I'm reading starting in verse 22. The soldiers brought Jesus to Golgotha, meaning Skull Hill. They offered him a mild painkiller, wine mixed with myrrh, but he wouldn't take it. They nailed him to the cross. They divided up his clothes and threw dice to see who would get them. They nailed him up at nine o'clock in the morning. The charge against him, the king of the Jews, was, was scrawled across the sign. And along with him, they crucified two criminals, one to his right and the other to his left. People passing along the road jeered, shaking their heads in mock lament. You bragged that you could tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Show us your stuff. Save yourself. If you're really God's son, come down from that cross. The high priests, along with the religion scholars, were right there mixing it up with the rest of them, having a great time poking fun at him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Messiah, is he? King of Israel? Then let him climb down from the cross. We'll all become believers then. Even the men crucified alongside him joined in the mockery. At noon, the sky became dark. The darkness lasted three hours. At three o'clock, Jesus groaned out of the depths, crying loudly, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders who heard him said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran off soaking a sponge in sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. But Jesus, with a loud cry, gave his last breath. At that moment, the temple curtain ripped right down the middle. 
when the Roman captain standing guard in front of him saw that he had quit breathing, saw that he had quit breathing, he said, this has to be the Son of God. Father, what will it take for us to know in our hearts, to say with our mouths, to live with our lives, the statement, this has to be the Son of God? Jesus, you are the one. You are the Son of God. I pray that each and every one of us listening would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are the Son of God, that your death and your resurrection changes everything, that you are Lord of all, that you are the King of the kingdom, that you are not just prominent, you're preeminent, that that you're not just sufficient, you're sovereign. Jesus, I pray that we would see you truly, that that we would follow you completely, that we would surrender to you our very lives. I I thank you for for tearing the curtain in two, for making a way for us to come into the very presence of God, to be adopted into the family of God is so amazing. And we thank you. We say thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for us. Help us to live like you. Help, Help us to live in such a way that people see you and us. May we crucified with you. May we see you live in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.